Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. And today I'm just here with you answering 10 of the questions I thought would be most relevant from my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast. I asked you guys to send in questions and I got so many. So I tried to pick ones that will be super relevant. This was a younger set. So I'm talking toddler bedtime and hitting yourself and others, the social life of toddlers in the pandemic, turn-taking and siblings, listening, whining, playground stress, timeouts, sensitive kids, and even starting discipline with babies. So I will do another episode with questions for parents of older children. If you enjoy this episode, I would love for you to rate, subscribe, and absolutely, if you have time, write a review. And of course, please keep me posted and send me DMs on at Raising Good Humans podcast. Since it's going to be Thanksgiving before my next episode, I just want to tell you all how grateful I am for this community and for your support and to share in this whole experience of Raising Good Humans. For my first listener question, advice for managing a toddler who keeps stalling at bedtime. It's gotten so out of hand. You are definitely not alone. Here are the three things toddlers need for bedtime. They need to feel safe. They need to feel soothed. And they need to feel that there is a predictable routine. Once you've done that, If you can keep yourself from changing it around, it will really help them believe and understand that they know what to expect and that's how it's going to go. So it doesn't really matter what different behaviors they test out, you're still sticking with your plan. Now that doesn't mean that you don't understand that it's a hard time. It's always a hard time to separate at bedtime. It's dark, it's lonely, and sometimes it doesn't even make sense because There are other people in the house who often are sleeping in the same room. Why does that little toddler have to be alone? So that can be really difficult on toddlers, but just because you understand that something is difficult doesn't mean that you don't have the boundary and expectation that they're going to have a bedtime routine. It can often be helpful to check certain boxes like no screen time an hour before bedtime That's kind of like having an espresso before bedtime because of all the lights and no screens at all. Even your phone screen, if you're trying to show them a picture or FaceTime with grandma, try to do that with lots of distance before bedtime. Having a nice relaxing cuddle and reading time is wonderful. But if a child is asking for more and more books, it can feel really hard to say no, especially to something like reading. So Ideally, what you want to do is tell them exactly how many books you're going to read. So when I say predictable, I mean boring. Like we always read three books before bed. And if they want a fourth book, you can say, oh, well, we did one, two, three books. You know what? Let's pick out your fourth book and we can read it tomorrow morning. And be sure that you do follow through the next morning, even if they don't remind you. And you grab that book and you say, remember, you wanted to read this last night? And I promised you we would read it this morning. And that way they know you also keep your word. Stick with it because consistent routines really help 
toddlers thrive and bedtime is super important. Lastly, check the timing of bedtime. Make sure your toddler's going to bed early enough. Oftentimes because they really want to participate and be, you know, part of whatever's going on in the house, they seem wide awake, but really they needed to go to bed long ago. So if you need to push everything a little bit earlier so that you're not rushing and remember that they can't read the clock, so they're reading the routines. Okay. Next question is, for toddlers kept out of daycare during COVID, how will this affect development? A lot of people have questions about how this pandemic is going to affect their children's development, especially young children. And here's the thing. Children are resilient for sure. Um, And I don't have a crystal ball and we don't have research to tell us what will be. But what we do know is that masks are definitely an issue because you cannot read social cues in the same way. You cannot hear as clearly. And so that's going to be something to just look at and be aware of. Um, In some ways, because you can be at home with your children, masks off, especially with younger children, you do have ample opportunities to have those engaged interactions. Whereas in a daycare center with masks on, it just presents a challenge for the loving caregivers to come up with different ways of communicating, nonverbal, nuanced ways of communicating, and a lot of creativity and sensitivity. So it's definitely a challenge, but I think. Hopefully, because toddlers are young and really require interactions to thrive, but they don't need lots of different diverse interactions. So really in the zero to three years, you need kind of your center, your home center. I feel confident that parents and caregivers and immediate family can do a lot of those interactions. One thing that we learn as this continues is what our kids do need. And you can often tell if you see big changes in behavior and routines, whether or not you need to make a little bit more of an effort to have a super safe contained pod to expand a little bit of their social interactions. But I'm not worried about academic development, for example, because we know that children learn through play at this age. So it just means a little bit more work on engaging in play at home, not in a care setting, and thinking about the self-regulation skills and executive function-based skills that kids inevitably get from good daycare centers, and good early childhood programs. So those kinds of things are following multi-step directions and kind of following routines of the day. You know, when kids go into daycare, they know that one of their big jobs is, for example, to take their coat off, hang it up, get it back on. Like things that we take for granted as just being something that one does, those take a lot of practice and routines. And that's something that you get from those kinds of programs. So building in those routines into your day-to-day life will be really helpful. And of course, taking turns and learning how to communicate with other kids is important. Again, it becomes more important after the age of three. The earlier years are much more centered around engagement within your smaller community of your family center. I want to say that it's not going to be a problem and that there's nothing to worry about. That's my hope. Um, But of course, we can't say that. So we do the best we can in the circumstances that we're given. And remember that resilience is built on small, manageable stress and loving support of parents and caregivers. And when you have that, you can really thrive. It's the big stressors that we want to remove from the lives of young children The big stuff is what's more dangerous for development. 
The hair is a changing. Did you just start dyeing your hair, straightening it? Maybe you're going gray or just had a baby and it's falling out all over the place. Cue Gemis. So there's no denying it. Hair changes. And did I mention that Gemist is also a women-owned CEO and founder, Allison Haar is a mom of two and a dog mom, went to Harvard, love supporting that. It's subscription-based, so you can save 20% on every order with Smart Subscribe and get free shipping based on your hair length and washing frequency. They actually personalize the subscription by the weeks so that you know what to get. So it's very flexible and you can skip shipments. There are free returns. So you can try Gemist risk-free with free and easy returns. And the ingredients are sulfate-free, paraben-free, dye-free, never tested on animals and manufactured here in the US. If you're ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter humans 20 a checkout for 20% off and free two-day shipping. That is gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter the code HUMANS20 at checkout. Hey girl, hey, welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all. But then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. Here's a question. I just welcomed a new baby. My two-year-old keeps hitting himself in the head and crying. What should I do? So the reason I chose this question is because even though that seems like a really unusual behavior, it's actually not so unusual. It's a way for some young children to communicate their distress. And typically when they do something like that, they then look to the grownups in their life to see how they respond. And it can become a cycle because it can be so upsetting. Maybe you put the baby down because you wanna make sure that your toddler stops hitting themselves you know, you might, you know, have a strong reaction or don't do that or something extra gentle, whatever it is, it can kind of become a behavior cycle that gets reinforced. So the tricky thing about this is it is very dysregulating for us to see our children hit themselves. That's really upsetting. So the first thing to do is to try to find a way to regulate yourself before you respond. Take that deep breath. Make sure that your two-year-old sees that this is not going to throw you and you can remain calm. And either disregard the behavior when it stops, just say, you're really having a tough time right now. I'm going to put the baby down and let's read a book or something that acknowledges the feelings. And certainly if you have the ability to put your baby down at that time, you can, but you don't want it to be a loop where your two-year-old hits themselves and then you then go put the baby down and pay attention to them. So try to separate that behavior as long as they're not injuring themselves, as long as it's not actually going to cause a trip to the pediatrician, in which case you really do need to protect their body and remind them to be gentle for themselves. You can also give an alternative. So you could say, you're so angry right now, you want to hit something, go ahead and hit the floor or hit the pillow. So you can give other options and still stay as calm and regulated as you can while acknowledging they're having these big feelings. You want to avoid over-empathizing where it upsets you so much that you aren't able to help them feel seen because you're feeling the same big feelings they're feeling. And that is where you get into those cycles where the behavior is just repeating itself. I know that can be so hard. And this happens with 
kids who are frustrated and don't necessarily have an alternative way of communicating. Okay, here is an interesting question. How do I encourage paying attention, making eye contact and listening with my four-year-old? This is a really um, interesting question to me because we so associate eye contact with listening and parents can get really fixated on making sure that they're getting that polite eye contact. And, and it is important, don't get me wrong, because in the world, it really does give a visual indicator that you're paying attention. And it always feels good for someone to look you in the eyes. However, it is also very difficult for young children, especially when it's in the context of either getting into trouble or needing to pay attention and follow lots of directions, anything that seems possibly overwhelming. So a couple of things that can help. One is when your child is making eye contact, try to notice what's going on, what makes it easier for them. Just kind of observe like a detective and see if those are environmental circumstances that you can replicate a little bit more when you're trying to promote listening. Next, get on eye level whenever possible before you start talking. And usually the reason why we're looking for listening through eye contact is because we're giving a direction or we're trying to make sure that the information that they're getting is sinking in. So making sure that you get at eye level instead of kind of looming over a child, looking down at them, even bending down, but not getting either crisscross applesauce or on your knees or really imagine yourself as a preschool teacher. It's so much more effective to get at eye level face-to-face with a younger child so that they don't feel that threatening big grown-up trying to talk to them. Again, much easier to make contact. And then also think about your child's temperament. For some kids, they actually pay better attention when they're not looking or they're totally engrossed in something and don't really want to give the time and energy to listening, but they can hear you. So one thing you can also do is a little listening check. So you might say something like, I know you're enjoying playing with your cars. Just raise your hand up in the air so I know you can hear me. And then you'll get a sense of they can hear you, but they're just choosing not to look. And you can decide whether or not that feels like an important time to say that you would really appreciate if they could take a break or let you know when they're ready to listen. And then, of course, if you're in a rush, the key is when you say something multiple times, you are no more likely to get the outcome that you're looking for than if you had just said it once with one reminder. You really just kind of become a nag. So if you need to say it more than one time with one reminder, take a breath, ask yourself, did I make eye contact myself at eye level? Did I walk over to my child, kind of take that time? And did I frame something as a non-threatening statement or a question or a choice? Or did I frame something in a way that feels like my child is in trouble? And one thing about questions, if you ask your child if they want to do something that they have to do, and this is a little bit veering off to the side of this question, they're not likely to give you the answer that you're looking for. Do you want to have dinner right now? No, I don't. So that might feel like they're not listening when in fact they are listening. So be sure you define what listening is, I guess is my point, because listening doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the answer you want. So if you ask a question and a child says no, keep in mind they're not not listening. They are listening to your question. If you don't actually have the option of saying no, make sure you phrase things as a statement. Please put your shoes on so we can go outside versus do you want to get your shoes on so we can go outside? So a lot of things about listening and and prepping the brain for listening is setting the stage for successful listening. And that's, again, eye contact, eye level, and phrasing things in ways where you're getting to the point and you're clear and you're not asking a question when you mean to make a statement. Okay. So this one is how do you connect with a toddler when they think their misbehavior is funny? It's very common for a toddler to giggle at what we perceive as misbehavior because 
first of all, if they look at our reactions, we are often doing something that is either new or confusing or actually funny because it's just a stronger, bigger feeling. And sometimes we also have laughed because they're kind of adorable and funny even when they're misbehaving. And so if we've laughed once, they're kind of looking for that again. So one thing that you can do to just let them know it really isn't funny, for example, if they're hurting someone or you, is to pause and state again what you expect from whatever their behavior is. And then let them know that you recognize how they feel. It feels a little funny to hear mommy get upset. I raised my voice because I'm worried that you were going to hurt your hand or whatever it is that you're worried about. And you can just be stern and straightforward and keep a very, you know, sort of modified tone. So you're not scaring them, but you don't have any part of you that's being light about it. Because oftentimes we give mixed messages with, especially again, with the youngest children and their behavior, because they're, they're so cute. And we also need them to not do certain things. And especially if it includes hurting themselves or others, you want to make sure that they understand that it's important that they keep their hands to themselves, no matter how angry they are. And here's what they could do instead. And actually, just as a side note to answer the connecting part, whenever you acknowledge what you see your child experiencing, regardless of whether or not it comes with a containment or a boundary or an expectation of their behavior, you are connecting with them. And sometimes that can happen with nothing being said, but just physically, your body is helping them re-regulate helping them get to a place where they can have the listening ears and brain that's possible because they're calm. And they just know that, yes, you are letting them know the behavior you expect. And also you are loving and your love is there no matter what. What is Peanut? This is such a cool app that connects you with like-minded women throughout all stages of motherhood. Peanut provides a safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive to build friendships and ask questions and find support. It introduces you to women nearby who are at similar stages in life. Peanut provides access to a community of women who are there to listen, to share information, and offer valuable support. Whether it's understanding IVF or what's happening to your body during pregnancy or how to adopt the first years, the nursery school years and beyond, Peanut is just there to connect you with like-minded women. What I think is really important about Peanut is that we know mothers do better when they have the support of their community and the support of other moms. I like to call them sister moms. So If you've struggled or you felt isolated, you're not alone. We know from the research that moms are super isolated during this whole entire wild ride that we're on. So you can find something that works for you and get connected. Download the app for free today. Head to peanut.app.link slash raising good humans or find it in your app store. This episode is supported by the team at Vistaprint. And this holiday, that's right, I am now talking about holidays because we're getting close. Vistaprint is all about helping you create custom gifts that are so personal they could never be regifted. So think about it. How do you feel when you get a personalized gift? Now, sure, some personalized gifts are a little bit goofy and Maybe when you were younger, you didn't quite get it. But if you're a parent or a grandparent, or you have a kid in your life that you love, there's nothing better than a personalized gift because 
you get to know that it was made exactly for you by the people who love you, especially in a time when we're separated from so many people we love, you have this opportunity to stare at them every day. Vistaprint specializes in the unregiftable gifts, gifts so unique and personal that you wouldn't dream of passing them on. One-off gifts like custom mugs and canvas prints, photo books, wall calendars, come on. Who does not want that? I know that my mom will be listening and waiting for it. (laughs) They're the kind of thoughtful gifts you really can't wait to give because they just make everyone feel happy. At Vistaprint, you can also create your own personalized holiday cards and add photos and messages and finishing touches like embossed foil and scalloped edges. So rather than giving something generic this holiday, make it unregiftable and thoughtful with a custom gift from Vistaprint. Go to vistaprint.com slash humans to get started on your unregiftable gift. The holidays are coming up, so don't miss your chance to get an unregiftable gift for someone you love. Get started today at vistaprint.com slash humans. Here's one about siblings. How do I help my four-year-old share with my one-and-a-half-year-old when the one-and-a-half-year-old grabs toys out of his hand? So a couple of things that are interesting about sharing and siblings. One, we have higher expectations of our older kids and we tend to be more protective of the younger ones. And two, we tend to have higher expectations of our older children in terms of how they interact with their sibling versus their friends. And both of those things can make it hard to teach the older child productive, adaptive ways to turn take and also take care of their feelings. So if your 18-month-old swipes a toy out of your four-year-old's hand, it's okay to go ahead and give them permission to want it back. So you might say, it makes sense that upset you. You know, you're let's say Susie swiped that toy right from your hand right when you were playing with it. And so now you've acknowledged that's hard rather than going to, come on, she's just a year and a half. She doesn't know better. You can play with something else. Any of those things kind of take away from that valid feeling of, I don't like how it feels when somebody swipes something. So now you've seen them, you've let them know that you understand them. And then you can help them problem solve. What do you think we should do? Do you want to, and you could give some choices. Do you want to get the toy back? Do you want to just let Susie have it and find something else to do? Or what is, you know, what, what do you want to do? What do you think would be a good idea here? Now with a four-year-old, they can usually come up with really good ideas, but if they need your help, you might suggest, well, One thing you could try is, Susie, I was playing with that right now. I'm trying to think of a a boy's name. So Pierce was playing with that right now. When Pierce finishes, you can have it back. And you can teach the 18-month-old about turn-taking that way rather than thinking of it as, I need to teach my four-year-old how to tolerate the 18-month-old grabbing things. Now, on the side of that, you could also have conversations about what do you notice that your 18-month-old sibling can't do that you can do? You know when, you know, a friend has a toy that you don't just grab it, right? So what do you think Susie's thinking in that moment? What can we do to help her learn? How did you learn? So really engage your four-year-old as part of the helper, problem solver in this situation, and also give permission. Hey, it's okay, by the way, if you say, that's something I'm doing right now. And when I'm finished, you can have a turn. That's important to give permission to the older kids to still be able to hold on to their things. They don't have to just cater to the younger sibling. You can always do those things without being unkind. So you can still hold on to the thing that you wanted to play with and teach compassion. This question, someone asks, my three-year-old started to act babyish. For example, saying mama, crying for what she wants, using baby talk, all since starting nursery school. 
help. So that is very typical. And if we could all speak into the podcast recording, I'm sure lots of moms of young children would be nodding. Yep, I've been there too. So think about behavior as a way that your child is communicating information to you. And through that, probably what's happening is they have to really work hard in preschool, especially right now, because not only is preschool a time when you have to really focus on keeping your hands by your side, doing the jobs that you're supposed to be doing and not other people's. And I, um, my daughters went to Montessori school, so I just called them jobs, but play or any version of that. But really the work that they're doing or the play that they're doing in preschool requires so much of them, so much of their self-regulation to not snatch something from someone or yell at someone or throw something on the ground in frustration. So much is required of kids just through the play of preschool. And instead of following just one house set of household rules, they're following a whole group And then on top of that, we're in a pandemic. So the rules are even more stringent. That is a lot of exercise for their brains. So most likely when they get to the comfort and safety of their parent or caregiver, they're pulling out the babyish stuff. They're reverting back to things that just help them feel like they can be taken care of, that they're not super responsible for everything and getting it all right. And they just get whiny. And they can, because you're not going anywhere. You're not going to um, kick them out of the classroom or embarrass them or whatever is going on in their imagination about what happens if they break a classroom rule. So sometimes the best students are the ones who come home and misbehave the most. What you don't want to hear is from the preschool teachers, you don't want to hear them saying, your kid was totally dysregulated all day and out of control. And then they come home and they're so well-behaved that you're like, I don't even recognize that child. In fact, that would, be, that would mean that they feel safer to act out in school than they do acting out at home. So the good news is your child is acting out, in this case, kind of whining babyish in the safest place, which is home, and that you are that safety. The bad news is it can be really annoying. And so with annoying behaviors, and I'm sorry to use such a crass term, but there are times when a three-year-old can be annoying and baby talk and whining can do that, especially when you feel like, oh, they've just been learned how to do these things for themselves. And I just needed that freedom to know that my child could dress themselves or feed themselves. And now what do I have to do? So I would say you can be understanding of the feelings. You had a really big day at school today and here's what you did and maybe even go through what the day looked like and all that they accomplished. And then acknowledge that's so much work for your brain. Your brain had to do all that work. I bet now it just feels so nice to be able to just whine and relax and let's get those whines out. Let's just spend a few minutes and just get silly, whine, complain to each other, you know, and, and maybe just do a little wine dance and then be done with it and then say, okay, now I really want to help you. And I want to understand what you need. Tell me in your real voice and start from there. So first you're connecting and joking and empathizing and present, and you acknowledge that it's been a long day And also you still remain true to the boundaries and expectations of the behavior that you expect at home. So give that a shot and see how it goes. Okay, my child gets dysregulated at the playground easily. Well, a lot of children get dysregulated at the playground easily because there's so much stimulation going on. So a couple of things that you might just kind of try to pay attention to before you make a decision about how to act. Um, One is what time of day does this dysregulation happen? Is the playground happening after a day at school? Is the playground happening in the morning? Is it before nap? Is it, you know, when it's time to eat? Making sure that if the playground is kind of hyper-stimulating that all the other things that need to be operating well you know, sleep and food and all that stuff 
are in check. And if not, adjusting the time that you go. Also, keeping in mind that if it is right after being really contained at school and having to navigate behavior, even though it seems like, okay, well, now they can roam free and play at the playground, particularly right now when there are still a lot of rules and regulations around just being around other children, it's important to remember that the playground also requires a lot of that same brain work and it doesn't have as much freedom as we would think. They still have to wait in line for their turn. They still have to stay six feet away from other children. They still need to be in masks. They still need to understand that you go down the slide, you don't walk up the slide. There's a lot to keep track of. So if it comes right after school or you know some kind of environment where there were a lot of rules to follow, it's maybe not the best time for them. And then also imagine, is it because they have other people with them that they're playing with? Or is it because they don't have anybody playing with them? What is the best way for them to go to the playground? Is it in a group or is it just alone with you? Is it with a sibling? Kind of just being a detective to figure out what sets your child off will be really helpful. Are they looking to touch other people's things? Do they need to have you know a, a little bucket of things themselves? Will that actually be more difficult for them because they don't want to take turns. There are so many different things to investigate. The important thing to keep in mind is if your child really gets dysregulated, give less time to the playground and build the stamina up. So if after 10 minutes, they tend to melt down, just go pop by the playground and then practice leaving the playground before there's a meltdown instead of kind of waiting for the meltdown. And then over time, you can practice until it gets easier and easier and you can lengthen the amount of time before the dysregulation occurs. Another thing to pay attention to is depending on their age, do they know what's going on? So if they're over the age of four, I might say, hey, you know, you've been having a lot of trouble at the playground and kind of melting down. And I'm wondering, what are the things that we can do together? Or what are the things that we can come up with together that might help you when you're feeling like you really want to explode? And maybe they can even give you a private sign that lets you know, you know, a tug on the ear or something that lets you know, I got to get out of here. I'm feeling overwhelmed. So much of this is going to be related to your child's temperament. So some kids at playground is a blast and for other kids it is really high stress. And the last little side note I would say is that you know yourself as well. For example, I will admit I loathe playgrounds. They were not for me. When my children were younger, to me, a playground was not a great place for them because it felt a little bit like it brought out my worst qualities. I would not promote taking risks. If anything, I was like, be careful, be careful. You know, just, I was unpleasant. So it wasn't my favorite thing to do. And I was watching kind of too, I was too hovery. I knew knew that about myself. So their dad was much better at playgrounds than I was. And that was kind of his thing. If you have the kind of personality where maybe you're a little bit tightly wound at the playground and a little stressed out, then it may be that that's just not your spot and they're feeding off of that because of course our children co-regulate with us. I'm not saying that is what's happening here, but I do think we always, when we see our kids' behavior and we think of it as communication, we want to think, what am I communicating in my behavior as well? And with my body language and with my nervous system, what's going on? And I can just say personally, I was not ever going to get the best out of my kids at the playground because I was not at my best. So I kind of bailed. And, you know, over time, of course, I, I did take them to the playground if that was the only option. It was a luxury that I had another option. But I will say that they, you know, have forgiven me since. And they just know that's not my thing. And in, in a way, <laughs> I've said this, it was in service of making sure that they had the experience they're supposed to have at the playground and I was not able to provide that. Today's episode is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. 
Go to oseamalibu.com slash raisinggoodhumans for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. And there's free shipping for US orders, orders of $75 and over, and free samples with every order. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first with potent skin and body care solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Their skin nourishing products are made entirely of plant-derived ingredients, are non-toxic, and a good choice for moms to be. Osea stands for the elements of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pulls from the botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base. This potent base allows for the products to easily absorb into the skin and effectively bring about balance while targeting signs of aging and skin imperfections. Osea was also founded by a family of women and every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. And California really needs it right now. So go to Osea Malibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com slash Raising Good Humans for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. And don't forget there's free shipping for U.S. orders of $75 or more and free samples with every order. Okay, here's a very straightforward one. What's the deal with timeouts? So I've addressed this actually before on Instagram in a little video. And... You know, I'm loath to say anything because I think that it's such a fraught topic because the idea of timeouts, it's not actually as big of a problem as people make it out to be. The, the issue is not the timeout itself. The issue is that timeouts are done in a misguided way that can really be problematic, which is that it's a shunning of a child, sending them away or embarrassing them or closing them in a room alone or anything that feels like you, the parent, can't handle their dysregulation. And so you're setting them off. That's not actually what the purpose of a timeout is. And in fact, many really wonderful ways to help kids learn to self regulate are just a variation of timeouts that are called time-ins or they're called body breaks or they're called calm corners, they're called mindfulness moments. They're still timeouts. It's just semantics. And if you kind of rebrand a timeout, you can think of it in a totally different way. So am I supportive of the idea of, you know, pointing to a kid and saying, go to your room, you need a timeout one minute per year of the child's age and nobody's going to talk to you. I'm not a big fan of that. But giving kids an opportunity to have some things that make them feel super comfortable, like a cozy corner that's a, a mindful corner, that's soft pillows and a plastic lava lamp or something that doesn't break that you can shake and look at to feel calm, anything that's, you know, soft and fluffy or a little bit of comfort, a t-shirt of yours, something that they can go to when they feel overwhelmed and dysregulated and really need to have a moment of calm, not where they've been sent there, but where they would choose to have a moment to regulate is actually really wonderful. We all need a spot like that. Unfortunately, I've actually (laughs) talked to colleagues about this and we're going to do a whole episode on this because it somehow has turned into like a, a fight in the in the parenting community of like a timeout is a terrible thing or it's an amazing thing for behavior and it's neither and it's totally misinterpreted. It is a time to learn a little bit of self-control. It's not a time to 
feel like you're punishing. It is in a way used and, and kind of misused as a big punishment that stops behavior. It's not going to do that. So it's not going to work if that's what you're looking to get out of it. But if you're looking to get out of it, something that helps a kid have an opportunity to regulate when they've gotten dysregulated and to use things in their arsenal that they've come up with with you that help them calm down and keep them safe, especially if there's another child involved and you need to help keep another person's body safe, for example, it gives opportunities to chill. It's just an opportunity to chill. So that's an important distinction. And I think, you know, it's a rebranding thing. And if you're thinking of it, again, as just like punishment and banishment, it's not a good thing because then you're not getting any regulation out of it. If anything, it makes you more upset. But if you think of it as one among many different tools to promote self-soothing and self-regulation in the context of being safe and supported, especially while you tend to another child who's hurt, for example, it's not this horrible thing. And actually it's super judgmental when any parenting expert suggests that that is damaging because we know from research that that's not true. It's just that there's been a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of what it is. And so it just needs to have a new name so that it doesn't fall in that same category. And the reason why it's important not to just say just it's a horrible thing is because for some parents, it's culturally appropriate and it's actually inappropriate for experts of any kind to be judgmental about a nonviolent solution for their own regulation. So for some parents, they actually need space for themselves to regulate before they can support their kids. And this gives them a space for their kids as well. And when we as quote unquote experts, you know, disregard something that might work for your family or tell you that it's dangerous for the kid when it's actually not dangerous for the kid, then I think it actually points the finger at this field, not at parents for doing something wrong. But that's such a long conversation. So I'm going to save it for an episode. I have a wonderful guest in mind for that. And I can't wait to have that conversation and would love to hear from you guys because I know that probably unraveled a few people or ruffled a few feathers. Here's another one. How do I handle my highly sensitive daughter who's six years old and schools opening and closing? So if I'm understanding understanding correctly, I think this is a question about handling those drastic changes and giving that kind of news um, and supporting kids during that difficult time, especially highly sensitive kids. So what I would say is always first come to terms with how you feel about it because our kids are looking to us and we want to be available for them when we do deliver difficult news or complicated scenarios about schools, partial reopening or hybrids or some closing and all these different things. So first come to terms with how you feel about it then you let go of that so that you can come to your child with a clean slate and an openness and a curiosity about how they're going to feel. And you give them the news and you tell them, here's what's going on. I'm going to be as honest with you as I can and give you the information that I have. And also, I know it's really hard to get different information and have all these changes. What are some things that we can do to help this a little bit go a little bit more smoothly? And then if they do want to continue talking, just hear them out, let them feel their feelings. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to say, but look at the bright side, save all of that and just listen and be there. Then later you might sit down and make a list with them. What are the things that will be the same? And what are the things that will be different in the different scenarios? And what are some things that can feel consistent as these in school, out of school changes happen. You might also ask them to share with you a few good things about being home and doing school at home. 
and a few good things about being at school so that it's not that you're imposing a bright side, but you're reminding them to always investigate the pros of things, not just how much it's a bummer. But you want to do that gently so that you're not forcing them to feel happy about something that they're upset about. And keep in mind for highly sensitive kids and this parent, you know, kudos to you for really paying attention to your child's temperament. We know that highly sensitive kids need extra attention paid to sleep and routines and healthy eating and movement and predictability. So that's something to make sure they're aware of as well and to really commit to, especially when the times are uncertain. Okay, and my last question is, what do I do when I hear my child criticize herself? So here's a tough thing for us as parents. It's a real challenge. When our children criticize themselves, it makes sense that we want to run in and say, something nice, something kind, something to refute what they're saying, something to remind them how awesome they are. But when we do that, we're not acknowledging what just happened. We're trying to make sure that we feel better, not on purpose. It's just a, it's, it's a natural thing. You don't want to hear someone you love be mean to themselves and you want to fix it right away. But if you give it a moment and you hear them saying, I blew it. I'm always messing up. I blah, 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 something mean about themselves. You know, I never get it right. It gives you an opportunity to pause, let them see that you're just, you're there. You're not going to be scared away by that kind of stuff. You're not going to validate it and you're not going to argue with it. You're just going to be there. And then when they have a space for you to chime in, then you could say, wow, that was some harsh treatment of yourself. That voice, that mean voice, I do that too. You know, and give an example of when you modeled it, how you get it. Sometimes you just feel so frustrated with yourself because you should know better, you should do better, and you didn't. And it can, it's irritating. And what's happening there is very natural. You're doing the same thing you would do if someone else messed up. You're snapping, you're snapping at yourself. And that's cool. Every time you snap at yourself, I just want you to try noticing that you snapped at yourself and then say something to yourself that the person you think is the most loving person would say to you. And by the way, adults can practice this too. So fine, I'm going to yell at myself and say, oh God, I forgot to do this and I was so stupid and oh my God, why, why, why? And oh my God, why, why, why did I blow it? Okay, fine. That was my voice that's not being nice to me, my snippy voice. Now, let me think what would a warm, delicious, kind, loving voice say to me? Sometimes you might think, what would my mom say? Or just pick someone that is just always yummy towards you your grandmother, your mom, a fantasy character, a character in a book. What would they say? What's your, who's, who's that character going to be for you? Now, of course, in life over time, we want that character or person to turn into the voice inside of our head that, that is our voice, but it can be a lot easier to use it as an outside voice. So, what would mom say? So that warm voice would say, oh, sweetheart, you really, 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 really feel so mad at yourself right now because you wanted so much to uh, make a special cake for grandma's birthday and you ruined the recipe. Ugh, those moments are so hard. I love you so much. That's all. You're just like literally teaching them and do it yourself too, because it's actually something we all can do. Um, remember the Shauna Shapiro episode and I from a few weeks ago, and actually she did it last year, when she comforts herself, she, she says, oh, sweetheart, you know, and she's talking to herself. And I love that because you learn to use this kind voice, but sometimes you just have to pick someone else because you don't recognize that kind voice because you're busy with the mean voice. So teach your kids that self-talk. Okay, so you yelled at yourself now. What would the kind voice say? The comforting, warm voice. Doesn't have to make you feel better. Just as a practice, you always want to 
have both of those voices. And that way you can be a little hard on yourself, like we all are. And you balance it out with, okay, maybe I got a little too over the top there. Now I can use my warm, soft voice and the loving voice. And now that's calmed me down. I'm, I'm not in my stress brain anymore. And now I can figure out what am I going to do about this cake that I just ruined? Or how am I going to solve this problem? Now, this is really not something that you do overnight. These are the kinds of things that take years and years to develop, but you practice it both through modeling yourself as you're making mistakes. And one note about mistakes, make mistakes in front of your kids. I mean, you will anyway, so I don't have to give anyone permission, but rejoice in those mistakes a little bit because they are opportunities to model this for your kids that you forgive yourself. It doesn't mean that you could just be a jerk all the time and mess up all the time and not work hard. It means, you know what? I blew it. And before I figure out what I'm going to do next, I am going to be okay with it. I'm not going to blow it all the time because I want so much to be the kind of person that just messes up and is like, no, baby. It's not about that. It's just like acknowledging that you have to go on. You don't have a choice. So since you have to move forward, what are you going to do to get your brain in the right frame of mind? That's kind of a a wacky thing for your brain to be in the right frame of mind, but you really need your brain to be in a space to receive the new plan. It can't do that without coming out of a stress brain. And that stress brain is the one that's yelling at yourself. So it's a long-winded way of saying, model this for yourself as you're making mistakes in front of your kids and talk out loud through that. And the second thing is helping your child understand the difference between that first moment of being self-critical and the second moment where they can balance that criticism out with a little bit of supportive love talk for themselves. How do I make sure I'm not permissive? My child is very strong-willed. Okay. So it gets very confusing when to balance permissiveness, when sensitivity becomes permissiveness, or when just giving up and being tired becomes permissiveness. So my short answer is, when you have expectations for your child, when you have an expected set of boundaries and you make them clear and your child doesn't like them, but they make sense, they're important and they're part of managing your day-to-day. Like they're things like brushing teeth and getting dressed and sitting at the table while eating and, you know, the kinds of things that are reasonable, not what color shoes they're wearing. So like When I think of boundaries and expectations, you want to think about things that make sense for your child, depending on their age, of course, and make sure that you could give them a good reason. And if the reason isn't good and you don't have a reason and it's really just, I just feel like making this rule, it's not a great rule. And you want to have great rules or at least good rules because if they don't make sense, you'll have more trouble being true to them you'll be more flexible with yourself. And that's when we get permissive. When a rule doesn't really matter to us. And so if a kid pushes back, we're like, nah, fine. Don't make the rule in the first place. And then you won't be permissive because you won't have to go against your own rules. So thinking about like, if your kid gets into a car, they have to use a car seat, right? You would never let your toddler in the car, get on the highway, and not go in the car seat because they just didn't want to go in the car seat. They might not be happy about it. They may kick and scream. You may have to help put them in the car seat and be gentle but forceful. And you may have to soothe them, but you'll still make sure that they go in the car seat. That's because you know that it's a rule that really matters for their health and safety. So if you think about rules that way, expectations will be super clear Your kids will understand why and you won't bend because those rules will make sense, have purpose, and are important. The minute they don't fulfill those categories, they're kind of extra and they're not actually going to serve you as a parent who's trying to avoid being permissive because you're going to have battles with a strong-willed kid and you're going to give in. 
you don't want to do that. So make sure that your boundaries and expectations are clear and appropriate and make sense and hold true to them even when your kids don't like it. And when they don't like it and they have big feelings about it, you can comfort them because not liking it, being upset by it, being distraught, being dysregulated is all part of growing up and being able to get through hard things. And your support and acknowledgement of those feelings is really important too, but you don't change the rules. And that's how you know you're not being permissive. You keep those rules and you keep clarity about what rules matter to you and you throw away the ones that don't so that in the heat of the moment when you're tempted because your kid is so strong-willed, you don't need to get rid of them. And they'll have clear boundaries and expectations to meet and the battles will get easier and easier. If they don't get easier and easier, it's a great moment to reevaluate those expectations, make sure they're both developmentally appropriate, that they make sense and that they're important to you. And then you go from there. And it's actually a really good topic for another episode. Okay, so my last question is how do I start discipline with my nine-month-olds? Okay, since discipline comes from the Latin root to teach, we really want to think of discipline as something that you can do from the, you know, from infancy, because it's just about teaching your children about how to move through the world in a way that is both appropriate and helpful. And so you can really work on discipline from infancy because it's just about moving through the world in ways that make sense for your family, for the larger community, and for your child. And there's a containment and boundaries and expectations involved in discipline, but that's still part of teaching your children how to follow those rules and what rules make sense and um, you know how can they self-regulate. So if you think about a nine-month-old, for example, let's say they're throwing food on the floor, a really easy practice is to let them know what you want them to do instead of telling them what you want them not to do. So instead of saying, don't throw food on the floor, you might say, please keep the food on the tray or in your mouth while you're motioning towards the tray or your mouth. You could also decide, hey, that's not something I care about and say, oh, you're throwing food on the floor and it goes plop. That's what happens when you drop the food, it goes plop. They're a little scientist. Neither is right or wrong, although I highly encourage you to move towards the food on the table or in your mouth soon enough because otherwise you're going to have trouble, you know, it won't, it'll start to get hard to take them anywhere else. But what that's called is a positive opposite. Instead of focusing on telling your child what not to do, you can start a practice of telling your child what to do. Because if you said, for example, don't throw food on the floor, they could throw food on the wall and they're technically listening, but that's not what you were looking for. So since it's about teaching, teach them what you want them to do. Teach them what is the behavior that you want to see. And there's so many other components to discipline. Part of it is letting them know that you see what they're going through so that you can help them feel connected before you redirect. Redirection is another part of this. So if they seem frustrated because they wanted to touch a plug socket, but that's dangerous, you can put your hand over it and say, danger or no touch, and then redirect them. And if they're sad, you can say, you really wanted to touch that. That's dangerous. We cannot touch that. So you're showing them through body language and your voice that it's serious, but you're also acknowledging that it's hard. And that this is something you're going to have to keep repeating. So positive opposites. And also when you do have to say no, or you do have to point out danger, which I really want to encourage you to choose wisely because you don't want to do it often. You want it to be reserved for times that matter so much because they could get hurt or hurt someone else. And if you do that, then they'll take it seriously. If you are constantly knowing them, which you're going to want to do because they, you know, as they begin to explore and crawl and pull and yank and do all sorts of things, they're going to be doing things that you're going to want to stop them from doing. So if you can err on the side of focusing on teaching them what they can do, they'll be much more likely to listen in those occasions when you actually need to say no or 
we don't do that or danger. And I would say start with that with your nine-month-old and think about framing discipline for yourself. And the last thing that I would encourage with someone with a baby thinking about discipline is what is your goal? Because whatever your goal is for discipline, that's going to inform the approach you take to discipline. If your goal, for example, is connection and you want your child to have a deep connection with you and a respect and also feel free to test the waters and try things out and always come to you, that might be a different kind of discipline approach than if you are coming at discipline with the goal of, I want my child to be compliant. I want them to be good listeners. I want them to have respect for adults. Then you might use a different approach. I am not placing value judgment on either goal and there could be other goals. I'm suggesting that infancy and early toddlerhood is a wonderful time to decide what your goals are because then you can really think clearly about your approach to discipline. Now, the parenting community or the parenting experts community, especially in the United States, bends in the direction of discipline in terms of connection and relationship. That's a value judgment because it's totally different for other people, for other cultures, for other communities, for other cultures within the United States. There's so many different goals for discipline. One is not more right than the other. As long as children are safe, as long as threatening and, you know, violent and aggressive and abusive behavior has no part of it, there's a wild range of discipline approaches that really matter depending on how you were disciplined, what you believe, what your family believes, what your community believes. And so I definitely have my own approach with my family. And I can tell you what the research says, if your goal is one or the other of these examples that I gave, but I want to make sure that it doesn't feel like an imposition to you as parents or caregivers, because I don't want to come from that approach of telling you what your goals are supposed to be. So first step, figure out your goals, talk to your co-parent or partner or co-partner or whoever is in your community helping you raise your kids and figure out or ask yourself what it is that you're looking for and then pick an approach that works. And discipline is going to continue to be a topic on the podcast with guests and I'm excited to explore it more. And I think it's always exciting when you start thinking about it when you have babies because you can really be intentional. And when we're intentional, whatever it is that we choose, we're choosing with our right mind, which is the ultimate self-regulation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and you want to do more Q&As, go ahead and send me some DMs on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And I certainly have collected quite a few and will continue to get to more. And I'm wishing everyone a beautiful Thanksgiving. Grateful for all of you. 